Hello and welcome to another election special episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My guest today is Paolo Gibaudo. We spoke about online campaigning, the contrasting effectiveness of the two parties' digital campaigns in 2017, and whether social media platforms have an inherent right-wing bias. If you've been finding these election special episodes interesting and useful, please think about becoming a patron of the show. You can become a supporter for $3 a month, which will get you access to extended versions of lots of PTO shows. And you can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Paolo Gibaudo is a political sociologist and the director of the Centre for Digital Culture at King's College London. He's the author of Tweets and the Streets, Social Media and Contemporary Activism, The Mask and the Flag, Populism, Citizenship and Global Protest, and his most recent book is The Digital Party. I began the interview by asking Paolo his response to the cyber attack on Labour's digital platforms that was reported earlier this week, and whether it portends an increase in political cyber warfare. Yes, I think that uh, political campaigning these days is played online, and that involves a number of assets, a number of structures, uh, websites, uh, social media channels. So obviously, uh, attacking those uh, is, uh, can be an important political tactic, can silence your opponent, mm. uh, can serve to disrupt the opponent's communication. And we've seen that in, in, in several occasions, both with, with protest movements and, and political parties, political actors. I mean, as of yet, it's not really clear what is behind that. I mean, we just have basically uh, rumors and, and yeah. some suggestions. We don't really know yet, as of yet why that happened. But I'd say it's something that, that we are likely to see more and more in, in years to come because uh, obviously there's an interest in silencing your opponent because those channels are a, a form of visibility, are a way in which uh, political actors can get their voice across and therefore disrupting that can lead to benefits for the other party. In terms of the almost military nature of, of, of such attacks and, and counterattacks and so on, how much credence do you give to the idea that the internet has a sort of inherent military logic? Yes, perhaps I would not exaggerate that in the sense that um, there's a lot of debate now on things like cyber terrorism, cyber war, especially in academic circles. And to me, sometimes it, it is a bit of a mystified debate in the sense that uh, it exaggerates the actual impact of logistical, infrastructural elements uh, there. Uh, when, yes, I mean, for example, the famous case of, the, of Russian hackers and their impact on the 2016 elections and whether all those bots and all those uh, fake accounts played a decisive role. I mean, I'd say, yes, they did play a role, but they were also ultimately used by Hillary Clinton as an excuse uh, to cover up what was a total car crash of, of a campaign. Hmm. Um, so these are sometimes used a bit as as a red herring or as an excuse. Uh, then in some circumstances, when it comes to the politics of revolution, coup d'etat, uh, and uh, power state uh, confrontations, indeed, uh, we are seeing uh, some of that, some of the kind of quasi-military or altogether military use of the internet. 
But I'd say that mostly in democratic politics, uh, uh, what is at stake is something quite different. But you, you wouldn't want to say that that uh, activity isn't going on, but that it's, it tends to be exaggerated for, for political advantage. Yes, because it's very sexy, right? I mean, it's very mm. intriguing. It sounds like something from Jean Le Carré or uh, uh, it's something that we have seen represented so many times in science fiction already since the 80s. Uh, so it, it uh, in a way, is, is intriguing. Uh, and, and, and it has a simplicity to it as well, I suppose. Yes, I mean, I'd say mostly what really uh, shapes uh, consensus and debate and opinion online are things that are happening in your face. They are happening uh, in public context, in public space, namely uh, propaganda on social media. Hmm. Uh, which is not something uh, that is that has an element of uh, espionage or hacking or all of that. Uh, it's something that may involve dirty tricks, some uh, black wizardry, some uh, sorcery, uh, but is ultimately not that dissimilar from uh, the political propaganda we have seen. Uh, for the last two centuries or uh, three centuries in democratic politics. Would you extend that argument even to saying that if we think about very, for instance, very targeted Facebook messaging, which goes after particular people in, say, marginal constituencies, that in some respects that's not very different than going door to door and leafleting heavily those particular demographics with very tailored information for them that wouldn't be seen by a, by a broader public. Because there's obviously this very strong notion of this, this segmentation of demographics and targeting at particular demographics and that we're not seeing what a broader public is seeing. But do you think that notion of, of, a, of the media of the past that was a kind of national media that everyone sort of saw the same thing was, was perhaps somewhat exaggerated? Yes, I think, for example, around the Cambridge Analytica uh, incident, there's been some exaggeration uh, from, from liberals, uh, and especially from the, from the Clinton camp, uh, from Democrats in the US. Obviously, what Cambridge Analytica did was wrong, was very wrong, uh, the way in which they used information that was uh, not covered, really, uh, by the, the permissions given by users this psychographics uh, uh, technique they, they you developed basically using psychological information that people had uh, given using a psychology app and, that, and people would never have known that that could be used for political purposes. So obviously that is wrong. It shows uh, many free things that are wrong in, in, in the social media sphere uh, when it comes to the fact that of, uh, often we are not aware of the way our data is used. So that is definitely wrong. But it was also in, uh, in some ways wrong what Obama did in 2012, mm. if we want to, to use the same logic. I mean, the Obama campaign was a pioneer in using big data. Now, they didn't go to the extremes of Cambridge Analytica. That is true. Uh, they were targeting people who were already Democratic supporters and uh, in order to spend advertising budget on them in the hope that they would then in turn share messages and act as a sort of amplifier for messages. But there was the app they used was also premise on data analytics where they were identifying people that were particularly um, propitious for the campaign in that they had networks of friends, 
that could be perhaps swayed to uh, in favor of Obama uh, and were in areas that were possible uh, targets for the Obama campaign in states that, that could turn one way or, or the other, right? So I'd say that, yes, sometimes we need to realize how systemic is the change that we have seen. And we need perhaps to, uh, we need to, 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 to be aware that, yeah, sometimes uh, we always tend to blame our obvious enemies, uh, but uh, say there are also less visible enemies, also among uh, liberals who are doing also dirty tactics. And often they get away with it. They get away with it because they uh, present themselves as the good, uh, whatever, humanitarian and, and correct people, while they, their tactics are not that dissimilar from those of, of national populists. It's been very striking with regard to the Liberal Democrats, hasn't it, who present themselves exactly. as, as, as the, um, the face of, of, of moderation and anti-populism and, and opposition to fake news. And uh, you know, so much of their campaign material seems to be you know, entirely uh, <laughs> fraudulent. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, um, before we come on to the current campaign, could you talk a bit about what lessons we can learn from the 2017 general election and how the, the digital campaigns of the Labour Party and the Conservatives compared and, and what lessons you think they are likely to have drawn from that campaign? I mean, the 2017 elections are a very interesting case study in that uh, they have been sometimes described as the first digital elections. Now, this is something that, in a way, has been said so many times that you don't know whether that claim is really true, uh, in a sense that already the 2015 elections were described that way, and before that, other elections. But what that uh, label points to is the fact that they were perhaps, indeed, the first elections where the digital component was not just an, an, a sort of auxiliary or secondary uh, battleground, but was, to a great extent, decisive. And decisive, particularly in the comeback of labor, I mean, the spectacular comeback of labor. Let's remember that labor got 40% of, of the votes, having started uh, 20 points uh, behind in most polls. And uh, it is widely reputed that social media were uh, instrumental to this comeback. And in fact, having studied this with some colleagues, we uh, looked at Facebook pages of Corbyn Labour, uh, Theresa May, and the Tories, and there you can really see that the Labour camp completely outgunned the Tories. Just one figure to, to show you that. Uh, L Jeremy Corbyn's personal Facebook page had more than eight times the user engagement of Theresa May's page. Now, eight times, right? And also the Labour's page had a far greater engagement than, than the Tories. So if you look at those stats, I mean, user engagement, what is that? It's basically the sum of all interactions, right? Imagine likes, reactions, shares, comments. It is quite a good measure of actually the success of a content. And it's a good proxy, actually, also of the visibility right, of a content in that the algorithm uh, in a way, response to user engagement, uh, uh, giving more or less organic reach, depending on that. Uh, so what you can see there is that clearly social media and Facebook, 
first and foremost Facebook because simply because Facebook is the is the biggest social media, not for other reasons, uh, played a decisive role in creating uh, supportive public opinion. Uh, that uh, was enthused, that was behind uh, Jeremy Corbyn's and, and Labour's message, and therefore that contributed uh, significantly in uh, in increasing the electoral share for for Labour. In terms of the different messaging, I mean, you know, in the paper you talk about how a striking difference is the extent to which the Labour Labour Party messaging was of a much more sort of positive nature, whereas conservative messaging was was more negative, more focused around things like um, security and, and migration. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the differences and, and how that plays into the question of engagement? Because I think a lot of people feel that social media has inherent structural bias in favour of, mm-hmm. of, of the right and, and even of the far right and of, of sensationalist uh, messaging of, of, of uh, what's often called the alt-right? Yes, uh, the, the research we did offers a message of hope uh, because indeed there is this perception that social media inherently favor uh, negative content, uh, fear-mongering content, uh, hate-filled uh, content. And we have seen that in many national populist campaigns from Donald Trump in the US to to Matteo Salvini in Italy and around issues such as migration. Uh, but that what our research shows is that that is not necessarily the case. Actually, you can perform very well on social media, also opting for a more hopeful and optimistic content. So what you saw in the 2017 campaign was that the Tories' messaging was very negative. It focused on Brexit, uh, no, uh, strong and stable Brexit. So the kind of background of that was fear, fundamentally, fear of, of social collapse, fear of decline, a fear of chaos, ultimately, not being able to manage this transition to a post-Brexit Britain, and terrorism, right? Let's remember that, unfortunately, those days were marked by two major uh, terrorist attacks which obviously uh, fed into the climate of the campaign, uh, giving it an element of fear, which obviously the Tories tried to exploit uh, in order to create this sense of anxiety, uh, security-related emergency, and so on and so forth. So their campaign was very uh, dark and pessimistic. And in that, they tried to present themselves as a sort of rock of stability, in this scary world, don't worry, you vote us and we will uh, save you, you right? Safe, we, we, yeah. we will protect you. We will protect you from danger. Um, Labour opted for the opposite strategy, basically. They uh, talked a little bit about Brexit because you couldn't really avoid uh, ignoring it altogether. But really 80% uh, of messaging was about promises of a better future social spending, uh, better public services, more nurses, more teachers, better working conditions, uh, a better health and education system was very much future-oriented and was very much based on uh, an expansionary economic vision of, of a better Britain where people would have uh, lived better. There was also on the back of the manifesto 
that, as you we remember, was a very important uh, event, the manifesto launch in, in Labour's campaign. Uh, why? Because the manifesto was very popular, because it contained many bold socialist policies that were widely uh, popular in the electorate, in a way galvanized uh, the electorate. Uh, and therefore, what social media did was trying to enthuse supporters around these policies, trying to enthuse supporters, showing them how many people were going to rallies uh, with Jeremy Corbyn speaking. And that, you can really see that in, a kind of, in the data, in the numerical data coming from social media, that really created a, kind of a wave of enthusiasm that certainly played a role in, uh, in supporting labor and in, in allowing labor to make that uh, spectacular comeback it did in 2017. On the question of user engagement, is there a difficulty in trying to work out what the relationship is between enthusiasm expressed online and how that translates uh, politically because clearly Labour's uh, position improved dramatically during the, the campaign and it seems unlikely that that's not related to to the engagement that you're that you're talking about but I you know I wonder if when it comes to the question of uh, the Conservatives campaign whether the lack of engagement on that side could be somewhat deceptive in the sense that, you know, perhaps you see a post uh, from the Conservatives bashing migration and, and perhaps um, you feel somewhat guilty about liking it. And so you don't visibly mm. like it. You don't click the button, but it does resonate with you and it does play into your mm. political choices. And, and obviously the Conservatives emerge from that election as, as the largest party. So how sure can we be that, that it does translate from the digital sphere to, to practical politics? Yes, obviously, to prove that, uh, you'd need to uh, use other methods. I mean, you need a survey where you actually look at the electorate and you look at, uh, you inquire how social media communication shaped their, their views. I mean, what you see there is more of an indirect uh, demonstration of, of a series of processes that go on in, in uh, all election campaigns, namely uh, processes of, uh, um, of opinion mobilization and of activation of the electorate, right? Because perhaps we, we, we shouldn't look at social media as a space that revolves around uh, uh, persuading people and turning them and converting them, so to speak, to your political position, right? I mean, more generally with, with media, that is uh, hardly the case, especially in the short-term framework of a political campaign, right? In the short-term framework of the political campaign, is very rare that you really manage to get a Tory voter, a solid Tory voter, and turn him, her, into a Labour voter. And, and on the doorstep, it's not even attempted, is my understanding. You know, you're instructed yeah. to uh, go after the wavering voters and the people who say they usually vote Labour and get them to come out. You're not trying, as you say, you're not trying to flip voters. Yes. Uh, instead, what is mostly uh, the business, say, of social media campaigning, and let's say electoral campaigning more generally, is activating your sympathizers, turn them into actual voters, uh, if possible, into advocates of your campaign, right? I mean, this is something we know from Paul Lazarsfeld, 
from all the people that in the 50s started developing a more sophisticated uh, understanding of propaganda. Because, you know, I, I don't know how much uh, listeners know the theory of propaganda, but before the theory of propaganda was all about this kind of silver bullet theory of propaganda, where the silver bullet is like the silver bullet for whatever, vampires or, or zombies, when you shoot with a silver bullet and you definitely kill uh, a monster coming to you. The, the metaphor there meant that it was basically uh, always successful, no matter what. If you have propaganda and people are exposed to that, people will, in a way, uh, be persuaded. In fact, what more sophisticated theories of propaganda have shown is that the fact of political communication is far more indirect, long-term, uh, sedi sedimentary, uh, and so in the long-term it sediments and then produces results. And often is more about uh, targeting the people who are already part, in a way, of your, uh, of your support base and making sure that they vote and making sure that they have conversations with relatives, conversations with friends, conversations with other people that may in turn also uh, be voters, right? Uh, and I'd say that social media definitely contributes in, in doing that. Definitely is important these days to, to galvanize people, to show people that it's really important, to emphasize uh, the importance of the stakes. Uh, and in, in that sense, I'd say in this day and age, social media have become as important as, as television, I'd say, in, uh, in mobilizing the electorate. It's an interesting point, isn't it? I suppose both in terms of the uh, online, but also the offline, because, uh, you know, a routine criticism of, of Corbynism and, and um, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn is this notion of, of preaching to the converted. And one sees that particularly around this question of rallies. You know, you, you mm. always see these tedious think pieces uh, saying, uh, you know, oh, what, what does it mean if there's a stadium full of people clapping for Jeremy Corbyn? That's not the country. But but as you say, I mean, rather as in the online case, it's, it's a question of, of enthusing the base in order to reach out more broadly. I think in 2017 they used this term. I, I've heard it from some labor activists. Uh, is supermajority strategy? Am I correct? So where the idea was, I mean, instead of looking at whatever Middle Britannia or focusing, trying to kind of moderate the message, was let's really enthuse our base with radical policies, and let's then hope in a spillover effect. Uh, where, uh, for example, we know that we have a very strong uh, support base in some places in London that are so enthused that they will then go on to other marginal seats and contribute to campaigning there. And I think that is actually quite a smart strategy in times of great polarization as the ones we are, we are living in. I mean, in a way, Donald Trump is using a supermajority strategy, right? Many people on the right, uh, like Salvini, are using a supermajority strategy. They are not trying to appeal to swing voters, to people who are undecided, but they are instead trying to galvanize their core supporters, knowing that in turn their core supporters, if they are galvanized, they will uh, in turn enthuse other people. They will in turn, in a way, make a show of strength that can be quite persuasive, can become in a way uh, contagious for other people. I mean, you know, this element of contagion, of virality, is often discussed in, in, in uh, relation uh, to, to social media. 
And indeed, uh, it has a contagious effect when you're seeing that people are sharing contents. When you see that people who perhaps you didn't think were political are mm, sharing political contents from a Facebook page or posting on something, expressing a position, that is often more persuasive than a political leader or an official political page taking a stance, right? Because that is why Facebook is so important, in fact, when it comes to political propaganda. Because on Twitter, you rarely bump into political opinions that are divergent from your own. It is really a filter bubble. It really tends to reinforce your position and push you ever more in your rabbit hole of choice, be it libertarian communism or uh, whatever, green uh, fundamentalism or uh, democratic socialism, uh, the Corbynite way. On Facebook, due to that the basis, the basic kind of connection is uh, friendship or uh, relatives, you often see people that you know from uh, your childhood, that you know from school, people you may have lost contact with, but that you in a way trust because you know who those people are, right? And often, therefore, the message uh, shared uh, by these people can be very influential in, in uh, shaping people's political opinion. Uh, because they give more uh, credence to a message that is given by that person. Oh, I remember from high school or whatever uh, that you know is a real person, right? Because something that is really important, I think, to, to realize is that we live in times of huge interpersonal distrust and political distrust. Therefore, um, the availability of people you know uh, that are sharing political content is, is of the essence to create trust and to allow messages to, to travel far, far and wide. Yes, I mean, we've, we've seen that during this campaign, haven't we, with this uh, practice of uh, Labour supporters recording videos of themselves explaining why they're voting Labour. And there's also been this um, uh, Tory stories meme that's been going around <laughs> where people yeah. are sort of describing the awful things that have happened to them. Uh, during the, the more or less decade of, of Tory rule. Completely. It needs to get personal. Mm, yeah. It needs to get personal. With regard to the emotional content of uh, the material being being put out by the, by the various parties and their supporters, you know, from a, from a liberal perspective, one very much sees that that view of politics that decisions should be taken in a in a cool and and rational manner and so there's therefore that sort of from that perspective a, an inherent distrust of emotion and and rhetoric you know that seems mm. to feed into this narrative that one sees from the center that you know the left and the right are kind of the same you know they're sort of doing the same thing <laughs> you know, it's populism the horseshoe theory horseshoe theory exactly yeah, yeah. um and do you think we should be at all concerned about the significance of emotion in uh, in our politics? I mean, we shouldn't unless we are liberals ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's, it's obvious that if you end up in a politics where people are completely uh, dri only driven by emotional elements and don't listen to one another and don't try in a way to accept that also your opponent perhaps has some views that should be taken into account, 
obviously that, that can be dangerous. I, I, I think that we can agree on that. But that the driver of politics is consensus, is rational agreement, as people like Habermas argue, I think that is very, very wrong. In that politics has always an antagonistic element. Why? Because it involves interests. Interests that are uh, often irreconcilable, that cannot be mediated. Is either one interest or the other interest. Is either the interest of the many or the interest of the few, right? To, to use Labour's slogan. And that is why uh, politics sometimes has this very visceral, very visceral, sometimes vicious element as well, because it involves people's experience and people's suffering sometimes at the ends of the, the other camp. I mean, perhaps I, I saw it most clearly in Brazil uh, in the elections in 2014, where you could really see how sometimes uh, support for the two candidates looked a bit like torcida, right? Looked a bit like football hooliganism, right? It was people really kind of uh, writing uh, the names of candidates. Gilma, Aesio. It looked like... like uh, uh, like sloganeering and cheering. But then you think about it. I mean, think about the generation of Brazilians who have been for uh, in poverty and then finally the Lula government, the PT government, meant for them uh, a way out of misery. And, and, and their political enemies, they're not just people with other opinion. They're people who basically would like them to go back to poverty, to slavery, to uh, hyper-exploitation are people they hate. They really hate viscerally. Uh, and, and that element is, is ineliminable. I mean, and you also see it in Britain, right? I mean, in the working class hate for, for the Tories. But again, that is not irrational. It's part of a, of a history that is generation after generation where the Tories are those people that uh, are responsible for your mother's untimely death because you couldn't get uh, healthcare uh, because the Tories didn't want public healthcare to be there. Are the people who are responsible uh, for your lack of education because they didn't want to give funding to schools? Are the people who are called uh, Tories scum, here we come, uh, because Again, they are perceived as enemies because they are uh, supporting radically different uh, interests. And uh, so that is to say that ultimately politics is about conflict. Mm. There's no yeah. way out of that. Obviously, what we don't want is to that conflict to escalate into violence, to escalate into civil war, uh, to happen well, things that uh, have been happening in the past in places like Latin America and unfortunately perhaps may uh, come back. Obviously, we don't want that. I mean, politics is, democratic politics is what, in a way, allows to mediate those conflicts within a context where they don't escalate into all-out uh, all war and all-out violence. Uh, but at the same time, conflict is there. Con politics is all about conflict. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.